Can, you can hear that? I can hear that too. Hey, how's it going? Yeah. This is the one channel we haven't, uh, haven't checked really since last uh, weekend. So we had a... Uh, is that me or is it something else? It is me? Okay. Um, hey, hear that? When I do that, it kind of does a thing. I'm just going to keep doing it because Clinton needs to hear me do it so that he can pull my game back. And uh, so, yeah. So anyway... Yeah, last weekend, we had a blast here last weekend. We had a concert here Saturday night, and uh, it wasn't our band, and uh, it wasn't even my kind of music, but it was a lot of fun. If you, if you remember the 70s, you would have enjoyed that show. It was a good time, and uh, they'd taken over the whole stage. So last Sunday, we just had five stools up here with three acoustic guitars and a couple singers, and we stripped it all down. Well, this week, we put it all back together, and this year, the test audience to see if we got it put together right. <laughs> so, so that's what we're kind of still working through some of that today. Thanks for being here. Glad you're here. Everybody warm enough? How many of you would be offended and never come back to this church if we turn the heat off right now? Okay, good. Because I haven't even started preaching yet, so I don't want to offend you yet. I'm just going to knock that back a notch or two, okay? If I see you put your Snuggie on, I'll know to turn it back up. Some announcements to get started this morning. Uh, I just want to remind the ladies and the teenage girls, Zumba tomorrow night, 6.30. Hope you're sticking with your New Year's resolutions. And uh, so 6, if you haven't checked it out yet, um, not too late, anytime, come check it out on a Monday night. Um, bring your coworkers, bring some, this is not just for churchy people, all right? So bring your, bring your coworkers and your friends and your family and your uh, neighbors. So for women and teenagers, uh, teenage girls, tomorrow night, 6.30. And then our ladies' ministry, Kindred Spirits, meets on Saturday, 9 o'clock. So you want to be here for that. Ashley will be here. And then next Sunday night. Next Sunday night, 29th, we kick back in with our uh, Youth Ministry Greater, which is a, a collaboration of area youth ministries uh, where we get our teens together uh, for worship, and we have a brief message, and we have some time to pray together, and we strip away all the entertainment, and we just focus on Jesus and, uh, and, and what it is to be a follower of Christ. And so uh, we are going to kick this off for this season uh, next Sunday night at Assembly of God. This is for teenagers grades 8 through 12, okay? And if you're in 7th grade and you're like, I'd really like to be a part of that you come talk to me and we'll get you some fake ID okay so uh, we'll talk about that so that's next Sunday and then Kelsey Layton just shared a prayer request with me and a lot of you know Kelsey if you don't know Kelsey you should probably get, introduce yourself to Kelsey there she is right there and you're like I don't know her because she's never here it's because she doesn't live here she uh, Kelsey grew up in the, we're, we're going to claim you and say you grew up in this church I think you were about 10 when you started attending here something like that 10 or 11 does that sound about right yeah, yeah. and uh, so she's one of us and uh She's working with a ministry in Lynn, Massachusetts called Straight Ahead Ministries, and um, she's asked us to pray for the city. They've, they've experienced, like, a lot of the gang activity has really intensified, a lot of violence, and she's asked us to pray for her team and for safety there and for just the presence of the Holy Spirit to come over that city and for God to have, a, have freedom to, to work there and, and to to minister to some people who are far from him. So um, just want to share that with you. I put a little more detail on the Facebook page today. So check out that prayer request and be remembering Kelsey and her team uh, in the days of this week. That would be great. You go home today? Yeah. I figured. Okay. Um, so we're home. I don't know if you're home now or you're home now and you're going home and you have two homes. So good for you. Yeah, exactly. So, all right, good. Just know that your church family is praying for you. Thanks for sharing that. It's always good to get those updates from you. Uh, we are in a short series um, about the church, and uh, specifically about the church that you are worshiping with this morning, Faith Community Fellowship. We're keeping this conversation very specific. Um, a couple weeks ago, in part one, uh, we said that everybody comes to church with an expectation. You came here with an expectation. Today, you, even those of you who have been here for years, you came with an expectation. If this is your first time here, you've probably come with an expectation. Jesus made it very clear in his life what the point or the purpose of the church would be. And it's interesting when you go from church to church. How many of you have ever attended another church except for this church? Anybody ever been to a different church? Yeah, okay. Um, you can, most of us have, you know, and you kind of, uh, unless you happen to land in just the right place for you at the right time in your life, we have to do the, we visit other churches, we're engaged with other churches, we do that. But sometimes you can wonder if you're even in the same realm of Christianity, when you look at the different things that different churches wrap their identity around and the things that church, churches tend to focus on. But we said that if you've been around church for any time at all, you know that one of the big challenges for the local church, for this church and any church, is that in doing the work of the church, it's so easy for secondary things to become primary things. So we're taking a few weeks to review church, why we're here, what does God want to do at Faith Community Fellowship, and how can we be a part of that? 
couple weeks ago, we looked at the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We like to call it the Great Everyday Commission because we call it the Great Commission. We tend to think that's for great superhero Christians. And we just kind of add every day in there. It's for all of us. It's the Great Everyday Commission. Jesus spelled this vision out. And this is the primary mission of the church. And in this passage, he basically, when you strip all everything else aside, he simply says the purpose of the church is make disciples. That's the bottom line purpose of the church. You take people who are not disciples and you lead them to become disciples. And then a couple weeks ago, we took some time to walk through our membership covenant. And I just want to remind you that the membership covenants are still on the table out there in the lobby. We'll keep them out there for another week. And we hope that you're considering officially kind of becoming a member of this church. And, and if you happen to miss that teaching a couple weeks ago, you might want to grab the CD or check out the podcast or listen online. So you can kind of, we talk through all the points of the membership covenant so we could, with a little explanation. And we talked, too, about the concentric circles in the church, and we talked about the characteristics of people in each circle, and more importantly, we, we talked about the bridges from one circle to the next, from the outer circles to the inner circles. And I just want to invite you, if you have any questions um, about this whole, this is not a perfect, it's, it didn't come from one of the, Paul's epistles, okay? It came from Rick Warren, which is right up there, but didn't quite make it into the scripture. So... Uh, if you have any questions about how we define that and where you think you might land, and, and more importantly, if you have questions about how do I make it from, if I see myself in this circle, how do I, where are the bridges? What's the path to the next circle in? Um, I would love to talk with you. Come talk to me about that. Um, send me an email. Message me. We'll get together. We'll have a conversation, okay? That'd be, that would be awesome. Today, we're going to continue to talk about faith community fellowship, and I hope in doing this that we're able to maybe pull the curtain back a little bit to eliminate any misconceptions and to clarify for each of us uh, what we really want to be about as a church. In 2004, Michael Finer wrote a book called The Finer Points of Leadership, which is really cool, and you've got a name like that, and you can work it right into your title. That's kind of cool. But it's, he wrote a book called The Finer Points of Leadership. It contains 50 facets of leadership, 50. And he says, if you master the 50, these 50 facets of leadership, as you lead your people, your organization is going to do really well. And I looked at that book, and I'm like, 50? You know, that is a little intimidating, 50 facets of uh, leadership. A few years ago, uh, after that, John Maxwell wrote a book called The 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. Some of you have that book. A few of you have actually read it. He sold millions of copies of that book, and I thank God that he whittled the list down from 50 to 21. That was a step in the right direction. Then Jack Welch, the former CEO of General Electric, he wrote a book called Winning, and in his book, he boils the basics of leadership down to eight so we go, if we went from 50 to 21 down to 8, now we're starting to get into my territory. I might be able to kind of grasp some of this. This morning, uh, we're going to take it down a, a notch further, and I want to talk for a few minutes about some things that we must do at Faith Community Fellowship. And as we wrap up, the, we're into the last six months of our 20th year at Faith Community, we want to give you a list that we can kind of keep straight in our heads, all right? It's not going to take a lot to lock this away, a list that's short enough that we can concentrate on just a few basics and that if we do these things well, um, our church will benefit. If we stay on mission, our community benefits and the, and the kingdom of God benefits. So four things, four things we must do. Thinking, get your mind around four. Let's start with that today. For the past few years, um, I've had a lot of conversations with people and I've had them in the last few days, actually. I had four of them last Saturday. I said, what are you doing here? What kind of church is this and what are you doing? at faith community, because we hear that you're growing. What are you doing? Like, what are you doing that churches are growing? How is it at the same time that other churches in the community are shrinking or are stagnant? How is it that you're growing, and what are you doing? That's a hard question to answer in a paragraph or two. Actually, it's a hard question to answer at all, and I actually uh, I think it's a good sign when you can't put our finger on one thing. You know, I think that leaves room for the Holy Spirit to kind of take care of that. When we started this church, we, we, we identified 19 different core values that we said should characterize us as a church, 19. Um, that's a lot. We whittled it down. We got it down to about 10 now. Um, in recent months, Dad and I have talked a lot about what God's doing here and how important it is for us as the senior leaders to protect the spirit that we find in our church, to protect the priorities in our church right now. Uh, so as we embark on the next 20 years, we want to just talk about four things that we believe we must do to sustain the momentum of the faith community. So here's number one. Ready? Number one is keep the vision clear. If we're talking about things we must do, number one is keep the vision clear. Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there's no vision, the people perish. Where there's no vision, the people perish. 
Think about the last three words of that verse. The people perish. What's that look like? What's that really mean? It can't mean that people die physically, hopefully, because I've been around churches and you've been around people too and people that are vision-free and organizations that are vision-free and churches that are vision-impaired. We've, maybe we've done some life in churches like that. We've done life in, an, in organizations or businesses like that, and it's awful. I mean, it's painful to live through that, but, the, but you do live through it. So the context, the people perish, is referring to the consequences in the hearts and lives of the people. It's an internal thing where there's no crystal clear, white-hot, Christ-honoring vision. The people perish. What's that mean? It means their shoulders sag, their sense of excitement diminishes, their hopes fade, and their dreams die. In a church where people start perishing for lack of vision, some ugly things can happen, and they happen quite quickly sometimes. Within months of a vision getting fuzzy, uh, you can watch perishing set in in a church. Church members get restless, they get irritable, they get critical, they become unloving, they start to kind of turn inward and they want all the resources of the church to be focused on their comfort and the convenience of the people who are already in and already convinced. It's like a little, these little special interest groups start to form and warring for the limited resources of the church and the time of the leaders and some, probably the majority, will simply start taking, stop taking church seriously. That's what happens. Because they know that their church isn't really doing anything or going anywhere, and so they'll allow their passion to be captured by other things, by their jobs or their hobbies or their entertainment or their recreation. And eventually the dreams of doing something significant just die. As leaders at Faith Community, we understand what happens to good, well-intentioned people if they're in a church long enough without a clear, compelling vision. The Bible says they perish. It's like you die a little bit inside. We've seen this happen. A lot of you have experienced this. A lot of, a lot of us have experienced this right in church environments. Should, this, should never, this should never be in a church. And we'll talk about why. But I've seen, entire, I've seen people, I've seen good friends of mine, I've seen entire congregations kind of give up on believing that their leaders are ever going to paint a picture of the future that will give them something to be passionate about. They've kind of given up on that. They've given up believing that their pastor has a vision or the leadership team has a vision or the guts to rally them around a riveting Christ-honoring cause. So they, they gather on Sundays, don't get me wrong, and they mouth the words to some songs and they nod their, hands, their heads in, in assent to, to, to some other harmless sermon and they drive away wondering why they bother with the whole thing. And they start to perish. So some of you who are leaders at Faith Community, you know who you are. Some of you fill a position on a team, and others of you just have influence, and you know who you are. We have to deliver on this. We've got to keep the vision clear. We've got to discern that, that holy discontent in us, We've got to feed that until the internal firestorm is raging enough that it has to give way to a vision. And then we've got to talk about that vision when we talk together with the elders and with the ministry team leaders and the influencers and the supporters of faith community. We've got to communicate this vision so that it's shared by everyone in this place until it burns in all of us. So if you get tired of hearing us talk about vision, just get used to it because we're going to keep talking about vision. Uh, because vision leaks and the fire goes out. But we've got to deliver on this clarity of vision thing. We owe it to our people because we'll perish without it. We owe it to God. We owe it to the kingdom. We owe it to our broken world. We owe it to our friends and family and co-workers and neighbors who haven't accepted Christ. And I'm naive enough to dream of the day when every single participant at Faith Community Fellowship is pulsating with excitement and determination to carry out our corporate vision and to pursue with our best energy a passionate personal vision too. There's a vision in the church that's worth investing in and praying for and giving toward and getting involved in and living for and dying for. And we still dream of the day when every single one of us is so fired up about that. And it's going to look different for every person. Don't get me wrong. But, but the vision of the church that, that, that you, just, you just spend your best hours of your day dreaming about what more you could do and looking for more opportunities to carry out this message that we've been given, to help this church and the body of Christ achieve the vision for the glory of, of the God that we serve and worship. I think that would be an amazing day. And I believe there can be such a day. 
because we believe that people like you are responsive to God. You're responsive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. We understand that vision is the most potent offensive weapon in our arsenal. When we connect it to that holy discontent inside of us, it'll burn white hot and other people will be singed by it and the church will soar because of it. We talk a lot here about mission. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. We talked about mission. But in all the talk about mission, we can lose sight of the vision. And they're not the same thing. Mission's important and vision is important. There's a subtle difference between the two. Mission is our reason to exist. It's why are we here? That's mission. Why are we here? And we've said that we're here and we exist as a church to make disciples. All right? That's the bottom line. Vision is about a preferred future. It's about what could be and what should be. It's about what it looks like when we're successful with our mission. So years ago as we launched this church, we said it this way, and we really have, haven't really tweaked this at all in 20 years. This is our vision. That we at Faith Community Fellowship, we believe that being led by the Lord through personal relationships and basic Christian community that's experienced in small groups and in our Sunday worship, that we'll see people in the Ellsworth area come to Christ, be discipled, be encouraged, be cared for, so that our entire region is impacted for Christ as we live out the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. That's our vision. It's about life change. It's about transformed lives. It's about lives changing in front of us. So elders, ministry team leaders, influencers, we've got to deliver on this. We've got to keep the vision clear. Second thing we must do is keep people engaged. Keep the people engaged. Nehemiah 4, 6, I love, there's not a better example besides Jesus himself, there's not a better example of leadership in the Bible than Nehemiah. And I love uh, the story of Nehemiah as it relates to leadership and as it relates to vision. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6, this is, this is in the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. It says this, says, all the people worked with all their hearts. I love that. In fact, I think we should read that verse together. Can we read that together? Can you handle that? All the people worked with all their hearts. And some of the people read it half-heartedly, so that's cool. Let's, <laughs> this, that's good. I don't like to be manipulated either. I get it. Just imagine for a second. Just imagine this. Every single person in this church working with all their hearts. What we have to understand here is the difference between someone who passively agrees or gives mental consent to an exciting vision. And you sit there and you're like, yeah, this sounds great. Oh, this is great. I'm glad this is what you're going to do and I'd like the show here. This is good. Yeah, this, yeah this, I'll probably come back next week. You know, you agree with the vision, of course, but someone, there's a difference between that and someone who buys in and becomes a stakeholder in that vision and someone who feels as responsible for pursuing the vision as we as the pastors and the leadership team feels. Nehemiah experienced this. He's the one who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. He's the one of whom it was said of his people that they worked with all their hearts. And he saw that happen. Uh, Michael uh, Abershoff wrote a book entitled It's Your Ship. I don't know if you've heard of him or of, of this story, but he was a, he was a captain in the, uh, a, he was in the U.S. Navy and he was promoted to take command of a, of a, of a guided missile destroyer. But the crew in this particular ship was, uh, was known far and wide for its poor per- performance and its even poorer morale. And for uh, when, when Abershoff took over that ship, in less than two years, he turned that ship and the crew into the most unified, highest-performing vessel in the U.S. Navy. And it's an amazing story, and he wrote a book about it. And he says he accomplished this turnaround on one basic principle. And he did it through creating ownership. And his standard line to his crew was, it's your ship. It's not my ship, it's your ship. It's yours to endure if you just want to endure and put in your time and be done. It's yours to be miserable on. It's yours to be, mis- to, to be embarrassed about if that's what you choose. Or it's yours to improve, it's yours to enjoy serving on, and it's yours to be proud of. And he explains that when the crew believed that their opinions mattered, that their input was wanted, that their contributions were valued, they started pulling together and they started working with all their hearts. Here's some things we've learned about engagement. And some we've learned a lot of these lessons the hard way. Um, the idea of getting more of you off the sidelines and into the game. First, you need to know that the pastors of this church are totally committed to the future of this church. You need to know that. That's important. Why would we ask you to commit to something that we're not committed to? If you're a high-commitment person, you're never going to sign on with a low-commitment leader. I get that. Dad and I have served together in ministry in Ellsworth for nearly 28 years. In just a few months, we'll have, if I've done the math right, a combined 70 years of pastoral ministry experience. And I know you know I'm not that old, so (laughs) just saying. We've... 
we feel like we've given some of our best years to growing the kingdom in this community. Uh, I've given all my adult life to the church in this town. And that's all great. Looking back at the past makes us, you know, the warm fuzzies are great. The other side of the equation, though, is that we are committed to this thing for the long term. We're wrapping up year 20. So I think we've proven that we're here for the long term. But we're kind of gearing up for the next 20. We really believe we're just getting started with what God wants to do in the kingdom in Ellsworth. Second, we know that people don't get excited about signing up for a small dream, for an insignificant endeavor, for a low-risk vision. Some of you are high-capacity people. I love high-capacity people. Some of it rubs off on me. I love it. And we realize that high-capacity people are not going to get involved in tiny, little, easily achieved missions because you know you're not needed. You've figured that out. You're not here to fill a slot. You're here to make a difference. You need a dangerous mission, and we have to provide that for you. Third thing is we need to be crystal clear about what it is we need people to do. And in addition to that, we need to give some running room to be, for you to be able to pull that off using your gifts and your personality and your style and your passion. We need to be able to articulate exactly what it is we're asking you to get involved in but then and give you all the resources and all the materials and all the equipping that we can give you to, to run with that. And fourth, when you get involved in ministry in the church, you need feedback. You need constant uh, and honest evaluation. You need an occasional way to go. You're on the right track. Or you need an occasional, uh, by the way, could you alter your course about five degrees right here and we'll all be heading in the same direction. You need those conversations. And the fifth, you need what every volunteer in every church needs and every volunteer in any organization anywhere needs. You need an occasional reminder that what you're doing matters. And in the context of the church, you need to be reminded that it matters for eternity. You need to be reminded that you aren't just parking cars and making coffee and cleaning the building, that you're creating an environment that's welcoming, where people who've maybe had a rotten week and maybe they haven't been in church for a while, and where they can come in and be comfortable, for, where they can, they can, their spirit can be at ease so the spirit of God can speak encouragement to them. You need to remind that you aren't just filling a slot in a nursery or in a preschool room or an elementary program or a youth ministry because we're desperate to meet some ratios, but that you're providing a service to some parents who need to be able to focus on what God has to say to them in this setting, who desperately need to interact in the adult world and have an adult conversation for an hour on Sunday, and you're contributing to the spiritual journey of some awesome kids and teenagers in Treasure Bay and Jammers and Surge and FCF Youth, and sometimes we're reinforcing what they're hearing at home, and sometimes this is the only place they're going to hear that God loves them and has some big, important plans for them. You need to be reminded that you aren't just making CDs and turning knobs and running software, that you're using your technical know-how and your creativity to make sure that the message of God's Word is communicated in a way that's crystal clear. And for those who learn best by hearing, for those that learn, learn best by the visual, for those who need to hear it again and again and again to get some clarity, that's what that team's about right there. I can go on. You need, you need an, occasional matter that, an occasional reminder that what you do matters. Talking about people like our band, our worship ministry, who come to a weekly practice on Saturday nights or Thursday nights. We, we started practicing at the music store back in the day. We moved to a place down the road in Trenton for a while where we got to bring our gear in every week. That was great. Then we got to practice at the Y after setup on Saturday nights. And then the last 12 years or so, we've practiced here on Thursday nights. But the point is that the people that serve us on our stage with the music that's become a big part of the personality of our church, uh, they've practiced as a band every week for years. And they work long days that add up to long weeks, and they work jobs that deal with customers and work jobs that are physically demanding, and they work jobs that take a lot out of them. They still roll in here on the hottest nights of the summer when it's 95 degrees in here, and they come to practice on those winter nights when only crazy people are out on the roads. And sometimes they need to be reminded that they're not crazy, just a little bit, but not totally crazy. And they need to be reminded that what they're doing matters and that the time and work they put into preparing to lead the church in worship matters. We all need those reminders. Jesus used to turn to his followers every once in a while and say, you're not crazy for following me. You're giving your life for this cause, but you're not crazy. This is what really matters. And for those of you who are actively involved in a ministry team at Faith Community, for those of you who make it a priority, listen, to be active in the lives of some people that you care about for the purpose of pouring into them. Your, main, your name may not appear on a ministry team schedule anywhere, but I get it. You are invested in the lives of people that you are pouring into with the hope of seeing them become fully devoted followers of Jesus someday. 
for the purpose of mentoring them and encouraging them. Someday in the future, you're going to look back and you're going to be grateful for every single hour that you gave yourself to a grander vision. We're talking about things we must do. Number three, make our gatherings memorable. Just create some great church services. And if you think it just happens, it doesn't just happen. We need to work hard to make our gatherings memorable so that you wouldn't think of missing them. Ever asked anyone why they don't go to church? I have, and I know some of you have. The most common answer is because the services bore me to death. Right, you were going to finish the sentence for me. Why would I go endure that? The service, on top of the services being boring, I don't understand anything the minister is saying, and it doesn't have anything to do with my life. Why? Why would I bother with that? I love this verse in Acts chapter 2. This is the story of the birth of the church. Acts chapter 2, verse 43 says, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. When they gathered together as the church, and they were, they were together as the body of Christ, it says, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. That's what we want in our services. That's what we want when we gather together in any environment, a sense of awe. Not a, not a ugh, that's different, okay? It's like, oh, I have to endure this again? You know, is he still talking? How long is he going to talk today? But awe, the awe as in holy transcendent moments where the awareness of the presence of God is unmistakable. Um, listen, just so we're really clear. A memorable church service has nothing to do with the style of music, has nothing to do with the style of preaching, has nothing to do with whether you're sitting in chairs in a roller skating rink or on a pew in a room with stained glass, has nothing to do with technology and video and background cues that move, has nothing to do with any of that. I've experienced memorable church services where the presence of God was so evident in little country churches with a pump organ, with seven blue-haired ladies in the choir, with wooden pews right out of some medieval torture device, but it's not all about that. And maybe it's just me, but I've been around church long enough now that I understand that when people come to our gatherings, when people come to our church, deep down they're hoping that God will touch their life. They want more than anything else. That's what they want. They're hoping that God will show up and God will meet them. And that the Holy Spirit will whisper to them. They're hoping that something awe-inspiring, transcendent will happen. And I, for one think that those of us who are involved in planning these gatherings should work behind the scenes to increase the likelihood that those transcendent Holy Spirit moments might happen. We should never manipulate it, but we should create space for it. In other words, I think we ought to work really, really hard to make our services as memorable and as potentially awesome as we possibly can. Because, you know, when I think that people are... I think what people are saying when they walk through our doors for those first few times... I think people are saying, move me. Scare me, inspire me, convict me, stir me, anger me, offend me, surprise me, ignite me, thrill me. Do something. Don't just leave me the way that you found me when I came in these doors. And it is so easy in church work where Sundays roll around with amazing regularity. (laughs) I know how you look forward to the weekend. I look forward to it too, but with a different perspective. (laughs) It's like, what? Wow, it's, how, whoa, it, Sunday's coming. It's just a few hours away. It is going to be here. We should probably do something. What did we do last week? Let's just do that. It worked pretty good. How can we fill 90 minutes this week? Maybe we can just phone this one in. I'm telling you, we've got to make our, me- our gatherings memorable. We've got to put the time in preparing the music, preparing the message, preparing for communion, preparing a prayer time, com- preparing a video, preparing our environments for our kids. It takes work. We've got to be willing to do the hard work behind the scenes. These things we must do. Number one, keep the vision clear. Number two, keep the people engaged. Number three, make the, memory, the gatherings memorable. And number four, this is really important. We can overlook this one. Pace yourself for the long haul. This is a principle for all of us, but it's especially true for leaders. Pace yourself for the long haul. Key verse here is 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Paul's talking a lot about his own story and his own approach to ministry. And he says, run in such a way as to win the prize. Run in such a way as to win the prize. In a long-distance race, at least in my experience in long-distance racing, 
You can laugh. It's fine. If you intend, I've read about this in, like on the Internet. If you intend to win a long-distance race, it's all about pacing. If you start a race too fast, with too fast a pace, you'll burn out, and there's not much chance you're even going to finish. If you start too slowly, there's no chance you're going to win. So great runners work hard at establishing their best pace. It's all about pacing. So again, I mentioned we'd had like 70 years of combined ministry and pastoral ministry. Now, I don't have any illusions about winning some big prize at the end of my life somewhere or when I turn a magic age and now there I get to sit back or whatever. The publishers aren't exactly banging down my door for rights to my biography. I got some phone calls to return this week. But I am, but I am and we are increasingly committed to finishing this thing with God's help, to finishing it well whenever that day happens to be, to finish it with our integrity intact, to finish it with a spirit and a heart that can still be surprised by God, finishing it with a family that loves to be together and loves one another and loves the church and loves to serve in the church, to finish it with friends that we can tackle life with and eat with and laugh with and and do it in such a way that we can stand before the one who finished his race before Jesus Christ himself, who had the toughest assignment of all. And I want to stand in front of that finisher, and I want to be able to say, I finished my race. Here's the bottom line. It's the only way it works. We need you. Church is the hope of the world. Jesus established the church, and he left it to be his hands and his feet, the body of Christ, to do the work of the gospel. And when the church is functioning, as Jesus called it to function, it is the hope of the world. Its future rests primarily in the hands of its leaders and the hands of those who have left the sidelines and gotten into the game. So these things we must do. We're going we're to pace ourselves for the long haul. We're going to work hard to make our gatherings memorable. We're going to continue to engage you. We're going to continue to explore every opportunity to keep the vision clear. That's our commitment to you. So what can you do? But no, that's what you're asking. What can you do? Listen to this. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Have you been around church at all? You're familiar with this passage of Scripture. Galatians 5, 22. Apostle Paul is writing this, and he says, The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love, that sounds, that sounds great. Uh, and so I'll just kind of reach out and hug somebody and get some warm fuzzies and we can go home. But love, love is, I was, here, I, was, I was here first, but you can have my seat. Love is, I'm going to sacrifice for you, even though there's nothing coming back my way. And, and you don't find that in nature, by the way. It's not a natural thing. Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness. I'm telling you, Paul wrote this when Rome ruled the world and kindness wasn't in their diction, and I've heard all kinds of... Let's just acknowledge it, ridiculous rhetoric over the entire spectrum of the political world this week. Haven't we heard it all from one end to the other? Let's just get a little perspective. Paul's writing these words under oppression from Rome. Spent some of his best years when he was, he was just antsy to fulfill this calling on his life, this calling to serve the church and plant churches and spread the gospel to people who'd never heard about Jesus, and he's sitting in a Roman prison. So let's just get a little perspective. He's writing this at a time when kindness wasn't a dominant uh, idea at all. It wasn't, even their, it wasn't even their dictionary. It was about might makes right. The emperor's word is law. That was, this, that was the rule of the day. So kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Faithfulness is, if I said I will, I will. Faithfulness, faithfulness is, I said I'll stick by you when things are good and things are bad, so I'm going to stick by you. Faithfulness is, it doesn't matter whether the law makes me do it or not, I'm going to be faithful. Men, faithful is what you want your sons-in-law to be, right? Yeah, think of it that way. We tend to use that word in church to mean uh, that's our excuse for never changing anything. We're just being faithful. We're just going to do it the way we've always done it because we're just being faithful. That's not what the word means. He says gentleness and self-control. Self-control, man, that runs contrary to everything nature urges us to do. In fact, I was thinking about this. What if we just had a self-control month? Imagine America just for a month. They put you in charge 
and you announce self-control month. And for one month, just one month, everybody in America is going to exercise perfect self-control. Would, oh, I know, it's funny, but would that be a good month or a bad month? Uh, well, I think you'd be skinnier. You'd probably be healthier. You'd get along with people. Husbands would be unbelievable. Wives, careful, would be unbelievable. <laughs> Things on the Internet that we wish would go away would go out of business for at least a month. Listen, if our culture simply embraced this one value, this one, fruit of the, this one part of the fruit of the Spirit, what a difference it would make. Does, so, so my point is, does the message of the church matter? Yeah. Because we're not just stewards of the message of an eternal life. We're stewards of the message of a better life, an abundant life. And it runs contrary to what's natural. And it runs contrary to what's, what's become normal. The Apostle Paul ends this little dialogue with a brilliant, brilliant insight. And I memorized these verses when I was, I don't know if it was in the Christian school or at summer camp or sometime. I, read the, I memorized these verses as a kid. And it, it wasn't until recent years that this last phrase meant something to me. If you've read the scripture before, my hunch is you've read right over this and you kept going, you focused on this list of however many things and, and, and you kind of skipped over this last part because you're, you're not like, oh my goodness, that's brilliant. But um, this struck me and I hope it strikes you. But there's, has to, here's the thing, there has to be something to the Bible. Um, and I just love when I, I've read the Bible more times now than I, I kind of stopped keeping track, but it still surprises me. And I love that about it. It's, it's a living book, and it, it just has ways of stuff popping out there that you're like, whoa, I never saw this before. This has new meaning to me. This next phrase, whether you're a Christian or not, or new to Christianity, whatever, maybe you've never read your Bible, maybe you always read your Bible, maybe you can quote books of the Bible, this is one where you've got to go, if that's a kind of insight in this book, then even if it's not inspired, I still want to read it, all right? This next phrase is staggering in its implication and in its significance. Listen to how Paul finishes this list of what a person or a community looks like when filled with the Spirit. Verse 23, he says, against such things, there's no law. And you're like, oh, I thought you were going to read something I'd never heard before. I thought it was something big. And Listen, because I think this is awesome. If you've been counting ceiling tiles or light bulbs or whatever, or you've been thinking about lunch already, just come back for just a second as I begin to wrap this up. He says, when it comes to the natural deeds of the flesh, we have to have laws to control people's behavior, right? But when an individual, when a family, when a community, when a culture, when a church, when a nation embraces the deeds and the activities fueled by the Spirit of God, there's no need for law to control that. You never hear anybody say, hey, that's enough patience now. Sit down. Don't make me come over there. No more patience. Too much joy. Too much jo-. Well, actually, that might be a bad example because some people... <laughs> It's a little annoying, if you know what I mean, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Too much love. You know the problem in your marriage? Too much love. That's your problem. Yep. You've got to tone down the love. You need a law in your marriage, a rule in your marriage against love. That doesn't even make any sense. A law against self-control? Are you kidding me? So you understand how brilliant this is? That Paul says when a culture, when an individual, when a family, when a church, when a Christian embraces and allows the Spirit of God to transform his or her mind and behavior, the need for law diminishes to nothing because suddenly I'm not the center of my world. Suddenly it's not all about me. It's not all about you. Do you know how powerful this is? We understand when we allow this to transform our behavior, the need for law diminishes to absolutely the minimum amount of law. Isn't this awesome? You see, here's, where, here's what I'm saying. Does the message of the church matter? I mean, are you kidding me? We are stewards of the message of a better life now. And we are, in a way, an illustration. We're an illustration of that as a church. And hang with me for a second. I still believe we're an illustration of that as a nation. With all of our problems and the fact that we've got to shore up some of our values and perhaps, you know, bring them more in line with the teachings of Jesus, which would be cool... Absolutely, we are still a picture of that as a nation. Here's what I mean by that. We talk about this all all the time, and you've probably engaged in some conversations in the last few months about these kinds of things. But when you think about where we could have been as a nation compared to where some nations are, we are still basically the fruit of this principle. And what's happened in our country and who we are and the things that we understand as right and wrong, they are not natural. We've been taught. We've bought in. We've been affected. We've been stamped with a, with a future 
by previous generations of people who understood and thought like the spirit-filled church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was part of our story. And this is really important because I want to make this clear. The church has never thought that all cultures are equal in terms of validity and in terms of existence. The church has never said that all cultures are equal. And you have a culture, I have a culture, our families have a culture, our churches have a culture, our communities have a culture, our nation has a culture. The church has always said there's a superior culture. Jesus called it the kingdom of God. And he talked about it a lot, especially in the book of Matthew. And so to the first century Roman culture, the church said, we don't think a culture that treats women as property is good. We don't think a culture that says the king's word makes law is good. We don't think that's a good culture. We think that our Christian culture is superior to the culture of Rome. And we think that our culture is superior to the culture of the Greeks where the caste system kept everybody in a certain place economically for generations and they could never move out. And since the day, that day, since the early days of the church, the church has always said, we're not better because God made us better. But our culture, our worldview, our way of life, our values are superior. And yes, we would love the entire world to adopt those values. And someday that'll be the case. But it's, it's, a, it's a better life. It provides for a better life. We think, you know, our Christian values are better than a culture where a man can put his daughter to death because she dishonored the family. We believe that would be true. We think our idea is better. Christians say, you know, you, know, you forgive, you reach out, you, you love. We think our culture is superior to a culture that says little girls are of less value than little boys. If you have a little girl, you set her on the steps of an orphanage or out in the woods or out in the street and you go have a little boy. No, we say, no, we say God created little boys and little girls equal. But they all have value in God's eyes. We think our way of looking at life is superior to a, a religion or a culture that says don't help poor people. You might mess up their karma. You might mess up their experience in a future life. Besides, God helps those who help themselves. That, the Bible doesn't say that, by the way. Now, our way, we, we're not superior. Get, don't get me wrong. We're not superior. But this way that Jesus left us certainly is. And we have the opportunity to bring a better life now because of what Jesus taught and what he modeled an example for us and what the New Testament teaches us. So I would argue that's the church. It's the church that says that everybody you've ever been eyeball to eyeball with was made and fashioned in the image of God. They have dignity and they have value, and everyone you've ever interacted with is someone that God loved enough to send his son to die for. It's the church that says, husbands, love your wives. Love your wives like Christ loved the church. Maybe we should have a month like that. All in favor? It's husbands, love your, love your wife like Christ loved the church month. Let's do it. Maybe that would be a good start, you know? To, maybe then we can tie that in with the self-control month. And, you know, imagine the difference. Imagine the difference in our families, in our church, in our culture, if for a month Christian and non-Christian men decided that I'm going to value and treat my wife like Jesus treated and valued those he loved. Imagine the difference that would make. And who else is going to say that if the church doesn't say it? It's the church that says forgive, and when you've forgiven, forgive some more. And when you've forgiven all you think you can forgive, lean into the Holy Spirit and let Him help you forgive all the way. It's not an eye for an eye. Jesus said it's not. You've heard that it is, but it's not. I'm telling you, this is a new deal. It's forgive because you've been forgiven. It's accept because you've been accepted. It's serve because you've been served. It's the church that says value those in society that society has little value for. It's the church that says give even when nothing's coming back to you. Show mercy even when you haven't been shown mercy. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. I don't know who you identify as your enemy. I've heard a lot of talk in the last few days, and it sounds like we're all enemies, and I kind of thought we were all Americans, but apparently, let's just love our enemies, and let's pray for them. Who else is saying that besides the church? Does our message matter? Of course it matters, because we have the message of eternal life, and we have the message of a better life now. It's a church that says sex isn't for mature people, it's for married people. 
It's the church that says sex isn't for committed people, it's for married people. That sex isn't for people who are in a committed relationship and, you know, we've been living together for years. No, it's for married people. It's the church that says sex is more than physical, that you're, you are more than a physical body. You are a soul. And God gave this intimacy and God gave this sense of oneness for a very specific purpose. And if that message disappears completely from culture, it leaves us in a place where we treat people like they're nothing more than a body. And every, every single married person who's in a healthy relationship knows that there's more to sex than something physical. It's the church that's been on the forefront to say that abortion is not a solution. And the reason it's not a solution is because that we are not just a physical body. We have a soul. We are a soul. So if the church disappears, and there's a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk even, even among you know, church expert growth people that the church as we know it is radically changing in the next 20 years. It's already begun. The church may fade away. I don't believe that will happen. I don't think God lets that happen. But if our influence and our presence disappears, the message disappears. This is why the church is the hope of the world. And if the church loses its voice, the message is silenced. And we, can't, we have a hard time getting our, our mind around how that could possibly happen, but it's happened in other cultures. Why somehow we think that we're immune to that? This is a message that shaped Western culture. Oh, and it's a message that nations like China have been examining in recent years, and they're realizing this may be what we're missing. We're going to be what the West has become. And their motives may be purely economic, but if it opens the door to American Christians and evangelists and missionaries, the Apostle Paul says, I don't care why you let, they let you preach, just go in there and preach, you know, because the power of the gospel has the power to transform lives, to, to transform communities and transform nations and the entire world. If you want to imagine what a nation would look like where all this teaching is suddenly not there or maybe never has been, all you have to do, I would say you could, go, you could look at North Korea, but we know so little about North Korea. I was actually doing some reading about it this week. It, it kind of blows your mind that why aren't we talking about this more? So let's just go back a few years before that and look at what happened in the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, where they tried to have this economic incentive. They thought they would introduce some form of economic incentive, and yet they, 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 never, they still have yet to gain traction. They've essentially gone bankrupt and tried to figure that out because they've decided that the state was God. And look, they, they've, they've tried to have free enterprise. They, they tried to protect some freedoms. But here's the problem. They have no conscience informed by Scripture. And it continues to falter and to fail. And the powers that be in China who are observing our culture are exactly right. The secret sauce is the church. The secret sauce is Christianity. And the secret sauce is the teaching and the values of Jesus. So does what we do matter? Oh, we have no idea. I mean, we have no idea how much it matters. Is what we're doing as a local congregation and the church in general important? No, we have no idea. Can we be a part of continuing to shape and reshape our culture? Absolutely. You know today there are more crosses throughout the city of Rome than in any city in the world? This is the empire that tried to put away what they called the way in Christianity and tried to destroy it forever is now to, to the majority of the world, it's the epicenter of Christianity. Why? Because this message is powerful and it shapes people. And when people are transformed, they change their communities and their countries. This message has a power to shape the world. And the reason that we do what we do as a church, and the reason that it's important is this, because we've been given the stewardship of the message of eternal life, and we've been given the stewardship of a message of a better life, an abundant life, and a purposeful and meaningful life now. And we dare not turn our backs to culture and simply talk to ourselves. I just want to encourage you, if, if you tend to lock yourself into a Christian subculture, if you get all your news from Christian websites and you listen, to all your entertainment is Christian and the only people you ever talk to are Christian and all your reading is Christian, I just want to caution you to keep that in balance. Because we dare not turn our backs on the world that we're living in and simply talk to ourselves.
Because if ever there was a time in our lifetime when it's time for the church to ramp up and amp up our message and be engaged and be engaged socially and be engaged in our communities and to live out these values in our culture, it's now. So here's what we know. If we do this, it has the power to shape and change lives and communities in this nation and the world. Because the church is a big, big deal. And we've been given the stewardship of this local church for our generation. So we need to take that real, real seriously. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled this morning that when, when Jesus got ready to leave this earth and to hand off the message of the gospel, he handed it off to people like us. And he gave that responsibility to what we call the church. Pray that we'd never reduce this to an hour and a half on Sunday. That we're part of a collective here where we all bring our gifts and our stories and our personalities and our callings. We bring this together to the church to form a healthy church. A church that has diverse personalities and diverse giftedness and diverse callings and a unified vision of the message of gospel going out in our community and making a difference in people's lives, the people that we do life with and interact with and care about and love, people that were made in the image of God who Jesus died for. So God, I pray that you would keep us on track. We thank you so much for your hand of blessing on this church in these last 20 years. Pray that we'd be struck with the enormity of the responsibility of stewarding what you've given us for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of your glory. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple weeks ago, we played uh, the Rain Collective song, Build Your Kingdom Here. Man, I thought, we should, I thought you sounded so good. And you sang so loud. And you clapped so good that we should do it again. So what we're going we're gonna to do, we're going to play that from the system and crank up the volume. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made.